Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 23rd, 2018. And this is episode... What episode is it? It's episode 2168. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show. This is where you send me questions for the Expert Council. The way to do that is put TSPC expert in the subject line. Send that email to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. When you do that, put your question in one to two sentences maximum and, and lead with that and then hit the return key a time or two to put some space in there and then start giving me your details. If you do that, it makes me being able to figure out if you've got the right council member for it. Maybe I'll change who it goes to. Uh, is it going to work for the show? Is the guy going to like it? Do I need to provide some? In All that stuff. It, it just makes it easy for me to look at it like a picture and go, boom, okay, I know what to do with this. And that means I'm more likely to forward it, and that means that when they get it, they're more likely to understand what you're actually asking, and you're more likely to hear your expert council member of choice answer your question on today's show. On that note, I got some people I could use some questions for. Jeff Lawton. I could use some permaculture questions for Jeff Lawton. I would say we could also use some for Ben Falk. Uh, needle for anybody, honestly, but you know, I'm just telling you some people that we don't have a lot of questions for right now. Um, Mike and Sue Laprise, anything on homeschooling? Maybe something on the recent issues that, you know, involve with school shootings and, and some of the subjects I brought, maybe something like that. I'm not, not sure. Uh, definitely could use some questions for Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives. Dan Omen, uh, we'll hear from him today, but I definitely could use some more questions for Dan. Uh, Nicole Sauce and Eric Strauss both, I think, are out of questions. So those are all people we could definitely use some for. But, again, you can always see the entire expert council by going to the survivalpodcast.com, looking at the About page, and you can see a link there for Meet the Expert Council. All right, so what are we going to be talking with the council about today? Well, uh, I've got a question on Helium and Uphold and how they work for Ben Fitz, our cryptocurrency expert. Have the ins and outs of the new Mercedes Sprinter diesel van with Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic, who's managed to finally get himself off the pikers list for not getting his questions answered. And uh, we have a question on traffic stop warnings and some other stuff from Dan Omen, our retired law enforcement officer. We have getting the best deals at government auctions from Tim Glantz of Old Grouts Military Surplus. We have dealing with health problems with goats from Darby Simpson. Dealing with anxiety and depression during a shit at the fan from old Dr. Bones. The War of the Currents, AC versus DC from Stephen Harris. And a segment I'm calling of Pawns and Hugo Culture and Bad Ideas from you, from, from me, myself, and I, Jack. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's take a look at the year in history for this episode. We are up to the year 103 this year. And the segment we have for the year 103 is Trajan's Bridge. After returning to Rome, Trajan celebrates a triumph for victory over the Dacians. He was keenly aware of the lack of total victory and a need to prepare for a potential second war. Trajan instructs his chief architect, Adolphus of Damascus, to build a bridge across the Danube River. Construction starts this year and will take two years to complete. At completion, Trajan's bridge will be 3,742 feet long, and it will hold the record of the longest bridge 
for almost 1,000 years. The bridge wasn't only a preparation that the Romans took for a potential campaign, and canals were dug uh, to bypass rapids and allow ships to navigate the river. My take by David Verne. One of the ways the Romans conquered foreign peoples was through their engineering feats. The Rhine and the Danube rivers were long considered the northern border of the empire because they were large enough to sail supply ships on and acted as a natural defense for both the Romans and the barbarian tribes. When the Romans built the bridges across the river, they took away the barbarians' ability to use them as a defense. They also took away their own ability to use them as a defense. And um, there's a lesson here about the U.S. We, too, had a couple giant rivers to protect us. They're called the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. And our nation was largely buffered from war and still is largely buffered from war by those oceans. With neighbors like Canada and Mexico, we, we just don't have much of a threat, you know, on our borders. And we, we never really have. I, I think if the United States had been, let's say, oh, I don't know, France, as a colony of England, I think fighting for our independence would have been much more difficult. And maintaining our independence would have been much more difficult if they had, you know, just the canal or the uh, English Channel separating them. Or let's say that we were Spain and Spain was a colony of France and we would fight. You see what I'm saying? Like, that would have been more difficult. And we have been buffered by these oceans. And technology eventually always removes the security of buffers. And that's a lesson for us in history. And we'll see how, you know, building bridges across natural defenses works out for the Romans, for the good and for the bad as we continue our walk through history in the future. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get into your first question for an expert council member. This one is for Ben Fitz on a, on a service called Helium and a little bit about another one called Uphold. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack, this is Ben Fitz from the Survival Podcast Expert Council. We have a cryptocurrency question today, and um, let's go on ahead and jump right into it. This is a long one. It's from Tim, and he asks if I've taken a look at Helium. And Helium is paired with an Uphold account, and he provides the links, which we'll provide in the show notes. Basically, you fund the Uphold account and link it to the Helium app, the Helium app will create balloons out of small pieces of your funded account that will be converted in and out of different cryptocurrencies with some type of automated algorithm. Then at a certain time, the balloon will pop and the gains will go back into the original currency to be used again to send off more balloons. He really likes the idea of this service and was wondering if he sees any pitfalls. Okay, that was a long, long one from Tim, but let's get into it a little bit. Um, so what Helium is, is they are essentially calling themselves like a savings account kind of thing where they take your funds that are in your Uphold account. Uphold is a wallet. It's an online wallet for um, a lot of different currencies, and they're actually going to allow you to buy. Uh, you can buy crypto using Uphold. It's an online wallet like Coinbase is in that you don't control the private keys. Unlike Coinbase, Uphold allows you to use a lot more currencies. Um, so I am somewhat interested in Uphold. Um, they also seem to be really taking compliance and such 
in terms of the regulators. So they're doing the KYC compliance that are necessary for regulators and the anti-money laundering. Um, Uphold also has a whole transparency thing where you can actually see how much money they have in their accounts in every different currency that they hold. So you can see how much Bitcoin, Litecoin, U.S. dollars, euros, etc. they have. Um, so Uphold actually seems like a fairly interesting service. I signed up for it personally, and I also might want to sign up for it for my business as well. I'm looking for other ways to buy crypto. Um, you can currently only link it with your bank account. You cannot link it with your debit or credit card because that's currently disabled. Um, I imagine they're probably just dealing with the fallout from the different credit card companies making it hard to buy crypto on credit card. Um, anyway, so that's Uphold. Helium ties into Uphold. They must be using the Uphold API um, so that's why they designed it to work with them is because Uphold has an API available. And so the Helium team, what they're trying to do is they're basically trying to um, provide a, a way that your funds can grow by paying attention to the market and the exchange rates and, and different things like that and and doing, you know, currency trading and they do it for you. And in exchange for doing it for you, they're going to take 50% of the funds um, that you earn as their fee. So it's a pretty high fee. Um, that's one of the problems I have with Helium is that it's a high fee. Another problem I have with Helium is they're absolutely clueless in terms of regulations. They're basically just trying to say that they're not a financial services company they're a software development company and therefore, and, and they're not FDIC insured, so therefore they don't have to do any of that stuff. Well, guess what? You're wrong, Helium. You do have to do that stuff. Why do you think USI Tech and BitConnect just got shut down is because they didn't do those SEC filings and things that they have to do to stay compliant in the United States. Now, you could go to another country to do that and probably get away with it, but these guys are based in Mesa, Arizona. These guys are also noobs, like 2015, 2016. I'm sorry, but like someone who was a teacher for seven years and started doing social media in 2015 isn't really very experienced. Um, so I'm concerned about a lot of things. I'm concerned about the security because you don't control the money. Once the money is taken out of your uphold account, Helium has control of that money. Um, I don't like services like that. Um, this is a service, if you absolutely wanted to just set it and forget it, that's what this service is for. Um, considering the fact that they're going to get shut down by the federal government, I wouldn't want to actually have any money invested with them because you stand a good chance of losing it. Um, they're also doing things like they have some sort of affiliate component and you can get more, a better return or something like that based on how much money you put into Helium. Um, the Helium domain name 
is only registered for two years and it's registered anonymously, not even through their corporate identity, which if you are a legitimate business trying to do business in the crypto space and trying to earn the trust of people to invest with you, you should be doing all that stuff above board and not anonymously. Um, I'm not saying that it's not okay to do stuff anonymously. It totally is. But these guys don't believe in their system enough or they're so poor that they can only register their domain name for two years at a time. You know what I mean? Like, that that's all red flags to me. Um, I see Helium as a really scary project. Um, I could put together their website for $500 on Fiverr. You know what I mean? Like you can go on Fiverr and you can pay for these little videos that they have on their website. Um, it's really, it doesn't instill a lot of confidence in me when they're talking about me putting thousands of dollars of money into their system. And what are these stupid balloons and popping balloons and all this kind of crap? If you're going to trade and make money for me, why do I have to have a balloon that pops? Um, why do you have to complicate things? So in answer to the question, um, thank you, Tim, for asking the question. I would avoid helium with a 10-foot pole. I would not put any money in there. I am, however, interested in the Uphold wallet um, and online. I guess, I guess Uphold is kind of like an online currency exchange because you can exchange your Bitcoin for other currencies. Um, I am interested in Uphold. I think they actually might be a competitor to Coinbase, and I'm always looking for competitors to Coinbase. Um, so I'm really interested in Uphold, but I'm not interested in Helium. So I'll put the links, um, you know, in the show notes. You guys are welcome to go try out Helium, especially if you just want to, you know, put a little money in and, and see if it grows for you. Um, that's fine. I, I'm not saying that the Helium guys are a Ponzi because because they don't seem to be a Ponzi. They seem to actually be like like their actual names and photos and all that stuff are online. Um, I don't know enough about the founders to know if they've been involved in shady things in the past. I haven't done that much research. Um, I don't think they're shady in the same way that USI Tech or BitConnect was shady. But I do think that they need to pay attention to what's been happening with other businesses and they need to not put their head in the sand and think that they're going to get away with creating a financial services business without calling themselves a financial services business and getting the proper uh, licenses. So anyway, that's my two cents. I hope this has been useful. I am Ben Fitz with CryptoGulch.com where you own the equipment and we mine cryptocurrency for you. Thanks, Jack, for the opportunity, and thank you, listeners. Bye-bye. Yeah, this is actually a service that I talked about um, in response to some Facebook posts not very long ago and said much the same that Ben did and said, basically, I see it being run like a Ponzi scheme, uh, in addition to these other issues that Ben brings up. So the, my, my, my concern here is that you just know not to touch this thing. I think Ben is dead on. These guys, not might, will sooner or later, they will get shut down. And what will happen to the funds they're holding when they do, I don't know. 
but I don't want to be the guy with the, the bag that's being held on the other end. My other thing is, any of anything that ever claims that they use automation and algorithms to guarantee a return, etc., if you can actually do that, you don't need to be doing it for other people. I mean, seriously, if you can actually do that, then you should be able to take a couple thousand bucks and become a multi-trillionaire in, 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 in almost no time at all, right? If, you're, if your shit works like you say that it does. And, and I've never met a financial advisor in my life that I'd give half the gains to in return for, for, for being my advisor. I don't care whether he's a computer or a person. Uh, it doesn't really matter to me. So I, I just say this thing's just not good. Uh, next up, I have a question for Charles Sandville. Um, on the new Mercedes Sprinter van with the diesel motor, Charles, take it away. What's up, TSP? It's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. This one comes from Fred, and he asks, Is the diesel engine in the new Mercedes Sprinter van reliable and long-lasting like I would expect from a diesel? Details, I'm considering buying a new Mercedes Sprinter van, but I'm concerned that some of the things I read about it online on the diesel engines. A lot of issues discussed seem to stem from the new emission standards and extremely complex and expensive EGR and DEF systems. According to the articles, this typically results in serious and expensive repairs by 150K. The older Sprinter vans before 08 are apparently better. What do you think? Are the new diesel engines as bad as they sound? Or do these guys just have an axe to grind? All right. Before we talk about the diesel thing, the, the thing at the end about the guys having an axe to grind, guys, remember when you're researching anything on a car, the thing you're going to find the most is the problems with it. There are far more people saying this thing is suck then there are saying this thing is awesome. So just keep that in mind in your search results. The top ones, the ones that get the most popularity and have the most draw are usually the ones that have complaints about them. So is this Mercedes diesel, this newest generation, better or worse than the older generation? Well, we don't know in a way because if it's a new vehicle, a new model, we don't have 400,000 miles worth of testing on a lot of cars. It's a very narrow, narrow thing that get that many miles that quick. You're dealing with a car that probably does mile up very fast, but it's not like they've been out for 10 years, so we really know. The 08s, on the other hand, have been around for 10 years. That's right, 2008 was 10 years ago. So we have a lot more uh, statistics than we do on the new stuff. We have this expectation of diesel engines to last a long time, and they do. But I think what happens is people get turned around a little bit when it comes to the reliability of a diesel engine versus the reliability of a diesel vehicle. Okay, the engine, yes, very reliable. But let's not forget about all the crap that's bolted onto it. I also think that people are a little bit misled by diesel engines last forever, and diesel engines last forever and I don't have to make any repairs to them. Those are two very different worlds and somehow have been molded together that they'll last forever and I won't have to make repairs. I know we've heard Jack talk about repairs that he's had to make to his diesel and I'm sure most of you guys that own diesel trucks, for example, know you gotta spend a little bit of money sometimes to keep it on the road and doing what you expect from it. When it comes to the newest gener I'm laughing because the the VW diesel thing is very close to my heart and even closer to my wallet as it cost me about 
45 grand of income over the year and a half that it went on. But this newest generation of emissions controls and EGR and diesel exhaust fluid can be and is problematic. One of the main things that we saw with the VW diesel engines was not engine problems. It was these emissions control problems. I can't tell you how many particulate filters I've put on cars because the check engine light comes on and it fails or it cracks and starts blowing soot out of the exhaust or diesel exhaust fluid systems where the heater inside the tank would fail and the check engine light would come on. It never caused a drivability concern, but eventually that diesel exhaust fluid problem would lead to the vehicle not starting. So I can't tell you, yes, the older ones were more reliable because they were great and they didn't have all this junk built on to them. Or the new ones are terrible and you shouldn't buy one. I can't tell you that. It's different. Yes, the older ones did not have all this stuff on them. But if you're buying one today, you're now buying a 10-year-old car that has the opportunity to bring other problems into it that you're not gonna deal with on the brand new car. With these emissions controls, the exhaust fluid and the particulate filters in general, most of them are replacement parts. The particulate filter, in fact, most cars have a replacement interval for it. It's 125 or so thousand miles, which seems bonkers that you're gonna have to replace like a $2,000 catalyst box at, at 120K. For me, I don't know which way I would go. If I went the new one, I would probably save up a little bit and plan for that to be a problem at some point. If I were going with the older one, I would save up and plan for different issues, whether they be engine or rest of vehicle, global vehicle problems, because instead of having an engine problem and, and dealing with like emissions in EGR, maybe we're dealing with transmission problems, or maybe we're dealing with body electrical problems, things beyond just what's under the hood. To kind of simplify it, yes, I have seen a lot of emissions control EGR, DEF, and particulate filter issues on diesel engines. Most of my experience is with diesel cars and Volkswagens, but these systems are exactly the same on almost all the German diesel engines. They may be fitted together differently, but it's pretty much the same people that make all the same stuff. So they do fail. It does add another element of maintenance to have another fluid you have to put in your vehicle. And be sure not to put AdBlue in your fuel tank or fuel in your AdBlue tank, both of which I have seen. Luckily, the exhaust fluid is pretty affordable and it's not something you have to like top off every day or even every fill up. There are a lot of people in this diesel emissions world that have the ax to grind, like you mentioned, that hate, 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 hate these new emissions regulations and hate all these other things that are bolted onto the vehicle to help comply with these emissions controls. But the truth of the matter is, they are here. They're not going to be less of them anytime soon. So unfortunately, if you want a new car, that's what you have to deal with. If you want an older car, like the 08 previous that you were looking for, cool. You're just gonna have to deal with a different set of problems. In fact, I might even say, if you don't need a diesel, begin to look at a gas version if it's available of this van. And I don't know if a gas one is available, but begin to look at it. Something we saw in the last handful of years comparing diesel and gasoline cars is the gap between the benefits of diesel and the downside of gas really narrowing. The most recent generation of gas versus diesel saw the increase in diesel fuel price, 
the premium that you had to pay to buy the diesel vehicle, and a change in maintenance, not on the diesels, but on the gas. So what happened is you went from the gas requiring premium fuel to only needing regular fuel, to having a maintenance interval on a timing belt, to a chain-driven one, which drops the cost of maintenance. Oil change intervals going up, which drops the cost of maintenance. And the gap in fuel economy really, really narrowing. Some of the newer generation gas engines were only seeing a couple miles per gallon difference than the diesels. And you're not having to spend so much more money on buying the car, on fuel, and more on maintenance. So I like diesel technology. If I were going to buy a big truck, you're darn right, it would be a diesel. If I was looking at anything else, I would really, really consider sitting down, spreadsheeting out overall cost of ownership, including purchasing the vehicle, in difference between gasoline and diesel. And you're probably going to find that the gap isn't huge, and it could make more sense to buy the gas vehicle than it does to buy the diesel vehicle from a cost standpoint. Just a couple of other things to consider extra beyond normal maintenance. I don't know if you were looking for yes, buy the new one or yes, buy the old one. I don't want to give you either one of those answers. I want to give you a few things to consider before making your own decision. Guys, thanks for the questions. Keep the car questions coming. If you want to check out more of my stuff, head over to HumbleMechanic.com. Jack, TSP, I hope you guys have an awesome weekend, and I will talk to you again next time. Yeah, I I just want to reinforce what Charles was saying about the difference between the the reliability of a diesel motor and the reliability of a diesel vehicle. Look at the Jetta. Like, I had a a Jetta TDI. The motor in the Jetta TDI is definitely more reliable, long-term, dependable than the... Uh, than the motor in the GTI, the gas motor. It is. There's no doubt about it. Rest of the car, pretty much the same car, isn't it? So if the car itself, let's say, has a problem with uh, you know, uh, parts of the suspension wearing out earlier than they should, it doesn't matter that you stick a diesel motor in it. It doesn't change that. If it has something that continuously, you know, the, the vehicle itself has a problem with, with let's say, U-joints going out prematurely or something like that. It doesn't pertain to that. And then the other thing is the maintenance and repairs. Yes, diesels can pretty much run forever. It, it doesn't mean you don't have to do any maintenance or repairs on them, though. If that were the case, then people like me wouldn't have had a damn job in the military. I mean, if, if diesels just never broke down and you never had to do anything with them, what the hell would you need a diesel mechanic for? So just just some things to think about when we don't over-accentuate the awesome advantages that diesel actually provides for us. Okay, so now you're in your car, you're tooling on down the road, diesel, gas, or otherwise, electric. You get pulled over by a law enforcement officer, and he lets you off with a warning. What actually happens when that happens? And well, that's one thing he's going to talk to us about. The other thing he's going to talk to us about is making a left at a red light on a one-way road. How does that work? So we got both of those. I think we're going to do the, uh, the left at the red light first. Hey, guys. Today I have two questions from Mike from Louisiana. Mike gave me a couple easy ones. I appreciate the softballs, Mike. So let's get right into it. First one from Mike is, what can I do, if anything, when the sheriff's office refuses to recognize certain state traffic laws? Details. Mike is from Louisiana, and Louisiana state law says that you may turn left at a red light provided no sign says otherwise, and it is a one-way turning onto another one-way. This is consistent with Georgia law and probably a lot of other states as well. 
Mike is friends with a sheriff's deputy in his parish in Louisiana and asked him casually if he knew that state law allowed for making a left turn on a red when you're turning onto a one-way. And the deputy said now he wasn't familiar with it, but he recommended not doing that anyway because the other deputies probably aren't going to be familiar with it and they're going to write you a ticket. So Mike wants to know how can he communicate with the local sheriff's office about making sure they understand that it is legal for them to make this left turn on a red. Mike, I think as you now know, going into a police department or a sheriff's office and trying to educate the officers on the law is probably not going to get you the results you're looking for. So here are a couple other ways you can go about this. Number one is schedule a meeting with your county solicitor or your municipal prosecutor, depending on what your situation is. The solicitor is an elected official who prosecutes misdemeanors within a county. If you're issued a citation within city limits by a city police department, chances are that they'll have their own municipal prosecutor so they can keep all their funds in-house. But in, in many cases, you're going to be dealing with a solicitor. Solicitor is an elected official, which means that he's held accountable to the voters, and you can schedule a meeting with the solicitor or one of his designees and sit down, have a meeting with them, and present this information to them. Let them know what the law says and that you've had some conflicting information from a sheriff's deputy, and you want to make sure that everyone is on the same page. The prosecutors, in this case the solicitor, has ultimate say on what gets prosecuted and what doesn't in a county as far as misdemeanors go. So they hold a lot of weight with police departments in communicating as to what is acceptable for prosecution and what isn't. So the solicitor's office would be able to send some pretty clear messages to a police department or a sheriff's office about what citation they can and can't write. The other option is... Don't really worry about it until you actually do get a citation. You may never get a citation for doing it. And if you do get a citation, you're going to have a really, really good leg to stand on in court. Chances are, once you present the information to the prosecutor about the citation, it's going to be dropped. And remember, you can request a jury trial for a traffic citation, so you can leave it up to a jury of your peers. So just simply present the information at court and you're probably going to be okay, and chances are going forward, that citation isn't going to be written anymore. I know going to court can be a headache and will take a lot of your time, so you may want to do the first approach, but just keep in mind that there's probably a pretty low likelihood that you're going to get a citation for it to begin with. Mike's second question is, how does a traffic stop warning work? Mike said his wife recently got pulled over for speeding and was let go with a warning, and they were wondering, are warnings tracked, or can a person get away with repeated offenses, assuming they get a warning each time? Well, back in the day, when tickets were still being handwritten, almost all warnings were just verbal. Most officers weren't going to take the time to write out a handwritten warning to, to give to somebody. It was a rare occasion to actually get a written warning. The verbal warnings were just that, verbal, with really no record keeping involved. The only log of the event was a record through dispatch. So when an officer makes a traffic stop, there is a, a log made in a computer if they're using a computer-assisted dispatching program. But now, as many police departments are modernizing, they have switched over to a more automated citation process. Your license plate information and driver's license information auto-populate into the fields in, in computer software. 
So when the traffic stop is conducted, the officer is going to run your driver's license and your license plate through the database to see if you're wanted or if you have um, any restrictions in your driver's license, uh, suspended license, anything like that. And if they decide to write you a citation, all your information is already in their computers. So they just hit a few buttons and then all of your information auto-populates into the citation and then they hit print and it comes out neatly printed on a receipt printer. So now to issue a warning, it's really no more work than if you were to give a verbal warning. You're just really hitting the print button at this point after you've ran the information. So printed warnings are more common now, and warnings issued this way are definitely logged in reporting software just like they are citation. They're not going to go on your driving history. So just real quickly on driving history, you have a criminal history and a driving history. So if you commit a robbery, you get arrested and prosecuted for it, it's on your criminal history. Law enforcement can search your record and, and see that you've committed this crime on this date and with this adjudication, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a separate record for your driving history for speeding tickets, running stop signs, and other offenses that you would receive a citation for. They're all in your driving history. So your warning is not going to go onto your official driving history. But it is going to be a recorded event in your in-house software. So, Mike, if you're driving around your parish, you get pulled over, you get a written warning from the police officer, and you decide to speed again the next day, the officer the next day, even though it might be a different shift in a different part of the county, the officer can see in the computer that you were issued a warning the day before, and chances are you're not getting another warning now. The sophistication of the reporting software has advanced to the point now actually a police department in Atlanta can see citations or police reports written in Seattle, Washington, as long as they're using the same reporting software. They're all linked now, so information can be shared so much more easily. So in conclusion, Mike, if you're given a verbal warning, and I don't know if your wife got a verbal or a written, it's likely it isn't being tracked, but on a printed citation, it has been recorded, and the next officer who stops you can see that you were issued the warning. I hope that is helpful in clarifying some of those issues for you. Take care. I think a lot of couple things. One, I, I've been very, very, very good over the course of my life in getting infractions reduced to warnings by being polite to police officers. Now, I've probably dealt with one truly rude, obnoxious police officer in a traffic stop in my life. I don't know if he got kicked in the head that morning by his wife or something, but he was a dick. Uh, everybody else that I've ever dealt with in a traffic stop has been professional. I've been professional back, and and I would say, you know, probably a good ten times been pulled over one ticket. That's pretty good. I think the ability to do that, though, is is largely going away, and this type of automated system is partly why, um, because... All of that automation that Dan just talked about is going to be available to that officer's supervisor at the end of the shift. And, well, if you're letting, you know, five or six people off with warnings that would be, you know, quote-unquote good tickets to write, um, it's probably going to reflect in your performance review. And I think that a lot of this technology that does some good things, like eliminating fraud and abuse, uh, has a, a, a negative connotation of reducing... Um, uh, what you would call officer discretion. Uh, these records would also be available uh, if that officer then arrested somebody for something in a, to a defense attorney. 
And if, for instance, they were to pull up and see, well, it looks like you've issued a lot more warnings to white people than black people for speeding, uh, then maybe the reason you targeted my client in the first place is because he was black. And whether it's true or not, you know, the fact that it's there is usable by a defense attorney. And all of this type of thing makes officers less and less willing to exercise discretion. And so, you know, I mean... I think the other side of this is we're headed for a world pretty soon where you're not going to give me a ticket. You're going to give my car a ticket because I don't drive. It's going to be interesting to see how the entire dynamic, because there's a lot of money involved in this. And I know I'll hear from law enforcement, like, you don't understand, we don't get anything out of that personally, and most of that money goes to the state, blah, yada, yada, out of our you know district or whatever. And it's true that when, when you get a, a, a ticket, money gets broken up to a lot of pieces that go to a lot of places. It still goes back into the, the, the coffer of the state, which is what you're paid with. Uh, it, it, and, and it has very much, to me, become a system of, of legalized road uh, piracy. It's privateering. You know, by order of the crown, you are hereby allowed to go out and charge people money for these things, even when maybe the thing itself didn't create any danger or any victim. Um, the guy's driving 10 miles over the speed limit, so is every other car on the road, but he's just the one that happened to pass you, so it's his bad luck today he's getting a, you know, a ticket. Um, that's a lot of how this stuff goes. And then on the other side of it, there's legitimate reasons for this. I have talked to officers a lot and said, you guys should go set up your cars in neighborhood streets where the speed limit's 25 and little kids play and people drive through there at 50. That's where there's actually potential for somebody to get killed. Uh, a guy doing 10 over on the highway on his way home, way to work, so he doesn't lose his job. You really help anything by giving him a ticket. And I know, I know it's just a job like every other job. But uh, if you can't exercise the discretion as much as you used to with the individual, maybe you can exercise the discretion in where you do your job. Uh, one of the best law enforcement officers I know, uh, who's now a lieutenant and no longer works traffic like that, but when he did. He said whenever they told him you're not writing enough tickets, that's exactly what he did. He went into the neighborhoods. He found people that were doing things that were actually dangerous, that actually endangered someone. He found people driving without any insurance. And I know what a disaster that can be when you have your vehicle totaled by somebody that has no insurance, for instance, uh, or people driving around with no licenses uh, and thereby no insurance as well. Uh, th these are all people that are actually have at least the potential to do some some harm to other people. And it... It would seem to me that it would make more sense to spend more of your time there. I don't do the job. I know I understand that, but just my thoughts. Next up, I have a question for Tim Glantz on government auctions. Hey, everybody. Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch's Military Surplus with a expert panel answer for uh, Ford from Zello. And he's asking about government auctions and do I have any tips or tricks or advice for getting into and getting the best deals from government at auction? Uh, and he's saying he might be interested in looking at some government auctions, but he doesn't know where to start. Uh, are they online or done in person? Um, can you go look at them and the rest of the stuff? And he mentions he's not really interested in resale, so huge quantities is not what he's looking for. He'd like clothing, camping gear, and possibly a vehicle trailer or two. Well, Ford, uh, this is an interesting time to be asked because there's actually a bunch of changes happening in the surplus business, at least on from the military side at the moment. But I'll go through some overview and some history here. Um, first thing, is that the uh, systems 
used to be that the government sold the stuff direct at auction. You went down to every base to what was then called DRMO, uh, where units turn in their excess supplies. And the way the system was supposed to work is then it sat there for a while. Other units could look and see if it was needed. There was a big list, and if certain items were there, they were sent to other places, and then everything else was determined to be unneeded, and it was auctioned off. You went down, you looked at it. Usually they had a list, the stuff ready for about a week beforehand, and then you could bid that day. You paid cash that day, only cash, and you left with it that day. And then in the 90s, they decided to privatize that. It was part of Al Gore's reinventing government, and uh, a company named Levy Latham got the contract to do all the sales nationwide. And so they started doing it online, and they eventually morphed and corporate changes, and they became uh, government liquidation, a name I'm sure a lot of you have probably heard. And for quite a long time, I'm going to say almost 20 years, they had the contracts, uh, and every bit of federal surplus sold from the DOD was sold through them with, with a few rare exceptions. Um, and I could go into long detail about all that and how that works and how you buy from them. However, it's all irrelevant because in December they lost their contract. They will no longer be getting any of this stuff. Uh, another company... Gov Planet, who is owned by a bigger company named Ritchie Brothers, now has that contract. Now, Gov Planet actually got the contract for rolling stock, all your vehicles and everything else, trailers and such, about three years ago. They've been selling them on there. Uh, their website, uh, if you're interested in those, is govplanet.com. Uh, there are some pitfalls on the vehicle side I'll talk about, and I've had some other people ask about vehicles, so I'm going to kind of take this opportunity to roll both of these into one. But... Uh, if you look at the website, you'll see. And now people look at me and say, look at that. They've got Humvees for $6,000. And the first thing I'm saying, no, opening bid is $6,000. Sale price is whatever it ends up at. Uh, one of the nice things is once you're registered there, you can go look at past sales and see the history. Um, you can inspect these things sometimes. Sometimes it's a very limited window to go and look at it. Uh, so that's uh, not always easy to do. Um they have very good descriptions of the vehicles on Gov Planet, especially compared to what government liquidation used to do. It's head and shoulders above, so you have a better idea of what you're buying if you look at it. Now, some pitfalls on buying vehicles. Number one, um, you are buying it, period. There's no warranty. There's no any of that. You're getting what you get. Number two, um, if it's a vehicle that requires what is called an in-use certificate, and you'll see that mentioned, Humvees require it. It's very random on what requires and what doesn't. Um, this is kind of the uh, stupid cousin to the NFA background check or the firearms background check, except you fill out this piece of paperwork that says what you plan to do with the piece of equipment, and it's basically saying I'm not going to export this to Iran or North Korea uh, without getting State Department approval, and then you send it off up to uh, an office full of bureaucrats, and if it's your first one, they will take anywhere from two months to six months to approve it while they check you out. And I think while they check you out means if it's six months, it may be five months and 29 days of it sits on their desk until they get to it. And then they get to it and they spend a few hours verifying you are who you say you are and you're an actual person and you're not on any secret government list of people that shouldn't buy and then they send your stuff 
Now, subsequent ones, if you've had one approved in the last year, go faster, and they can go anywhere from two weeks to two months. Once again, just depending on how long it sits on a disc. But here's the pitfall there. If you buy that vehicle, you have to pay for it within 48 hours, but you don't actually get to go take possession of it until that paperwork comes back cleared. So I've seen people wait up to six months to be able to pick up a vehicle that they've already paid for. Meanwhile, it's just sitting out on the lot. Uh, and some of these lots are more secure than others, and parts can disappear, which has been an issue, and then you have to take it up with them and fight with them over the parts. Then once that's done, uh, you go to pick it up. However, you will not get a title or registration. You have to physically remove it from the facility. Then you have to apply for what's called a standard Form 97 or SF-97, which if anybody has ever bought a brand-new car or trailer and you got a manufacturer's certificate of origin, this is kind of the equivalent that comes from the government. And you're going to wait. And on a good day when you apply, you may have your SF-97 back in, if you're lucky, six weeks. Uh, the government actually just ran out of the forms because it's a special form that's got all the special, you know, anti-counterfeiting marks not long ago. And people have been waiting in excess of six months for their SF-97 because the government doesn't care if you wait. So it, it is conceivable for you to spend, you know, anywhere from $500 for a trailer to fifteen to $20,000 for a running vehicle and not actually be able to pick it up for up to six months, and then after you pick it up, not be able to actually get a real title and registration and plates to drive it on the road for up to another six months. In a best-case scenario, your turnaround, if you have to do both of those, if you bought from them before and you're in the system and everything else, your best-case scenario, probably four months. Uh, so that's, that's something to think about on the vehicle side. Um, Another thing to think about, especially on some of these like Humvees, is it is very iffy on if in you whatever state you're in, if you will actually be able to get an on-road title for a Humvee. Uh, there's a long, complicated history on that. It goes back to the 90s when about uh, 500 Humvees were sold by the Marine Corps in kind of a uh, kind of an innovative but somewhat shady deal where they were sold when they weren't ever supposed to be sold. And AM General was just about to, you know, come out with their H1 on the market. And AM General panicked at the idea of surplus Humvees undercutting their $80,000 H1s. So they sent letters to the Department of Motor Vehicles of all 50 states telling them that military Humvees were not made to federal vehicle safety standards and should not be allowed to be tagged and titled on the roads of civilian vehicles because they weren't motor those standards. Now, there's a long debate there because the law actually exempts military vehicles from those standards, and uh, there is an opinion on record from the DOT saying that uh, that exemption does not expire when it leaves military service. It's always exempt, but a lot of these states just don't care. So before you buy a Humvee especially, do a lot of research and find out if you will have issues getting it tagged in your state. Some states, no problem, you can do it. Some states were doing it and have been revoking tags now. Uh, some states will flat out refuse to do it. And you don't want to drop ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 on something that you can never drive on the road. Uh, personally, I'd never drop that on a Humvee anyway, but that's another story. Uh, as for commodities, clothing, camping gear, and like that, uh, Ford, you mentioned you don't want huge quantities. Well, at government option, you're going to buy huge quantities. 
Uh, that's just the way it goes. You know, you're going to buy what they call tri-wall boxes, uh, which is a big, thick cardboard box, triple-walled, the name makes sense, which, by the way, old tri-wall boxes have a million uses around the homestead, just the thick cardboard and everything else. Uh, you can even, I've even uh, put them inside of Hugel Mounds because, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, a bridge between fresh wood and the uh, uh, rotted wood. It kind of goes in there and gives something that will decay early and bring a lot of that in. And it seems to work pretty well. But anyway, off that tangent, uh, you're bidding on those large quantities, and uh, it, it's mostly sight unseen. Like what's going to happen uh, with GovPlanet when they take over the auctions that will be like government liquidation is all these commodities things are going to be centralized in two main big warehouses. Government liquidation had Columbus, Ohio, and Oklahoma City. It looks like GovPlanet, uh, for those in the industry who haven't heard yet, is going to be doing this in uh, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and Las Vegas. So I'll, unless you're local to those, you can't really go look at it because the way it works is it's an online auction for both of them, and exact format that GovPlanet is going to use is still kind of up in the air. We haven't seen it. Uh, but so if you wanted to go look at it, you would have to physically travel to these places, look at it, travel home, bid on it, and then if you win it, either physically travel back to pick it up or pay somebody to ship it to you. So unless you're close enough where it's it's an inconsequential expense and of time and money to go to look at it, you're really bidding just based on what pictures are there. And uh, I can I don't know what it's going to look like with Gov Planet, but with Gov Liquidation, it was very much a pig and a poke. You would have a box the size of a pallet, four feet tall, and they would show you the top of it and say assorted field gear to include and then have some examples. So uh, the number one rule of thumb in this industry is it's it's a bit of a gamble every time. Don't ever spend money you can't afford to lose on a lot unless you physically travel to look at it. A good example, uh, the, the assault packs for the Marine Corps packs, the uh, ILBE packs. There were uh, a bunch of them sold about four years ago, and a friend of mine and I both bought one lot. I got mine, and almost every one of mine looked mint perfect. I mean, they were nice. She got hers. Every single one of hers, you know, about 300 of them in a lot for each of us, every single one of hers had bad zippers. We didn't have any way to know. I made out like a bandit on that one. She managed to get the zippers sewn in and fixed, and I think she broke even on the loss. She at least avoided the loss by having the zippers fixed. But that's how radically different your experience can be. And, and in, on the auction, they look the same. You couldn't tell. You can't tell from a picture in the box if the zipper's good on a bunch of stuff. So uh, that's a bit of a bit of an introduction to it. Uh, it is... You know, the biggest thing, yeah, don't spend anything you can't afford to lose because you will stand a good chance of losing a lot of it. Uh, on a similar note, uh, I owe a lot of TSP listeners apologies for two reasons. I've been a piker here for a long time, and also uh, we've had a number of issues here at the shop that I can't go into. Jack knows some of them. Uh, some of them were out of my control. Some of them were strictly my failures here. But uh, I am working to get things on track. I know I've let a number of customers down. If any of you still have lingering issues with me, I'm working my best to catch up. Uh, I've set up a special phone number you can call or text me on. It's a Google Voice number that only comes to me, 828-565-1136. Please reach out to me. Let me know what your order number is or other issue is, and I am working to make all this right. 
when I can talk more about everything that's gone on, I will definitely give an update to the community. But for right now, anybody that is, uh, I have let down, my sincere apologies, and I am working to make every bit of this right. Uh, and uh, thank all of you who b- bared with me through this uh, and for sticking with me. Thanks a lot, Jack, for the show, and I hope this answers some questions and kind of gets some people uh, understanding some of this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I've heard from a few of you that have had issues with Tim. I know he's been working through them. Um, I know they probably could have been handled better, but and I do know what's going on, and it's something that can't be talked about publicly um, due to the nature of it. But it's not anything Tim did. Um, it's just one of those things you can't t- you can't talk about it at, at the present time. Um, but I think he's dug mostly out of that hole, and he's committed to me that anybody he's dropped the ball for, get in touch with him, and he will pick it back up and make it right. He's always done that, and I appreciate him weighing in at the end there with an apology for those of you that have been affected by it. Uh, next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson on some limp and limp, lame and dead goats. Uh, Darby, what's going on, man? Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life and Simpson Family Farm calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a mayday for help from Matthew in West Virginia. His email starts, help, my goats are limping and dying all over the place. Um, Matthew says that he's got um, uh, nine goats that are roughly on three-quarters of an acre, and uh, there's a 30-degree decline on his land and the goats have got a few flat spots in a barn that they can get into but they are limping and staying on their knees all the time he says they've tried trimming their feet changing their feed and even feeding just hay he says uh you know recently the goats have stopped dying which is good um and they've switched them to an all grass diet but they're still on their knees and will not get up and he is wanting some help and advice. And Matthew, I do not have sheep or goats, but um, what I can tell you is that uh, you know my my first inclination would be that if you just had one or or two animals that were having problems, you know probably you've got something going on with a hoof. Uh, maybe it's been too wet. Um, this can happen with cows in the winter. I see it with my cows, uh, particularly on their rear feet. Um, a lot of times their their hooves will just start growing and growing and growing and they start walking kind of funny. Uh, but generally speaking, they do okay. And, and once, you know, it, it dries up in the spring and they start uh, moving around a bit more, those hooves will just kind of work themselves back down and everything is a-okay. But the fact that all of your goats are doing this uh, really puts us quickly out of this being, you know, like a... Uh, a muscular issue or a hoof issue or a, you know, a skeletal issue. This really very quickly, uh, puts us into most likely like a nutritional deficiency, uh, or possibly even, even something, you know, if there's a disease they've picked up that has affected them neurologically, uh, since it's affecting everybody, uh, it, it's, it's, there's something, uh, you know, that's, that's farm wide here, uh, across the whole system that's, that's affecting all the goats. And you mentioned you've got some sheep and they're not having any issues. Um, which I, I find kind of interesting because these are such similar animals. Um, I think really probably to figure out what's going on. I mean, you're probably going to have to get, you know, a, a blood and stool sample from a couple of different animals. I think you have to get a vet involved. 
because I think you've got a disease issue going on um, and or a nutritional deficiency again. And that may very well be the issue if they've got low levels of uh, certain vitamins and minerals uh, that's, you know, basically causing a rickets-like issue in your goats. And that's that's my guess. With no more detail than you've given me, um, you know, really, I, I think you need to get a vet out there uh, or at least um, contact a vet's office uh, and tell them what's going on and get some samples yourself and get those to the vet or to a lab uh, to get some examination done because you really need to be treating these animals, um, you know, with some kind of medication and or uh, vitamin mineral supplements. Uh, you didn't mention that you were giving them any any minerals. Um, I would definitely introduce minerals ASAP. Uh, also, if there's a broad spectrum uh, vitamin that you can give to them, that you can administer in their drinking water. I would suggest doing that immediately. Um, I don't know. You mentioned you were giving them feed. I'm, I'm assuming that means grain. Uh, I, I don't know that, um, you know, that you necessarily want to change too much there uh, unless they have scours, uh, very bad diarrhea. Then, then we start looking at making a, a feeding change. Um, and then, you know, with that, you know, you could have a warming issue, but that doesn't really sound like what's, what's going on here. It really sounds like it's more on the nutrition side. So those are my suggestions to get some mineral in front of them, get some vitamins into them and get some blood, uh, some stool and possibly even some urine samples to a lab, uh, to get some examinations done so that you can get some professional advice on, you know, how to, how to take care of your animals here. Um, one other thing I want to mention is, you know, with, with goats and sheep and a, and a 30 degree decline on your property, uh, on three quarters of an acre with, with 12 animals, um, you're probably really overstocked. And, and from, from a pasture management standpoint, I, I would, probably encourage you to maybe cull uh, or sell off some of your animals uh, and really kind of destock because I think you're, you're, you're probably doing more harm than good with that stocking density on that little bit of acreage, you know, if you're not able to rotate them around. And you didn't say if you had more land than that or not. You're, you're just saying 12 animals on three-quarters of an acre with a 30-degree decline in West Virginia. I've been to West Virginia on farms with animals. I've seen what they what they do to the soil and how much erosion can occur uh, in a pretty short period of time, uh, particularly this time of year when it's really wet. So just a little side note there for you uh, to give some consideration there. Um, but again, reach out, get some professional help, and get some treatment for your animals ASAP. Hopefully no more of them have died since you sent this question in last week. Um, but anyway, you know, that's my advice. And... Um, I really think you need to spend some money on a vet and some lab tests to uh, get these guys pointing in the right direction. Uh, if you have other questions for me, guys, send them in. I'm wide open right now. I don't have any questions in the queue. So if you've got a question related to farming and farming for profit, please send it my way. Also, check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast. You can find that on iTunes. You can also find it on our new home for Grass-Fed Life, which is grassfedlife.co. You can listen to the podcast right there on that page. You can also read free blog articles. Everything on that site is 100% free. 
and is completely geared at helping you, um, you know, raise animals successfully and make money with animals and a regenerative farming system. We've also got a new Facebook page. You can follow us on Facebook now, uh, The Grass-Fed Life. That is myself and Diego Footer um, is at Grass-Fed Life Podcast on Facebook. I'm posting stuff out there. You can keep up to date on, you know, the weekly podcast episodes that we produce. You can also read the blog articles as well as some other tidbits and things I'll be sharing out there. And lastly, if you are really interested in this kind of stuff and you're like, I want to go for it, I want a side business or I want to farm full time, check out our other new website, farmbusinessessentials.com. Our online course is now live. You can purchase it. You can watch it. Anybody in your house can watch it. We've got uh, 23 modules, about 25 hours of content, everything you can imagine from marketing, setting retail prices, uh, tracking expenses, setting up your business, uh, corporate structure, brand image, uh, website creation, how to raise the animals, how to sell the animals, how to cash flow everything, you name it, we cover it. This is a complete A to Z course. It is dense. It's thick. There's a lot to it. There's no fluff, no filler, no BS. That is not my style. There's no theory. This is how to go make money in farming, regenerate the land, not feel guilty about it. This is not just another course. I want to stress that. This is not just another course to throw money at. You take this course, you are ready to go farm for profit. That's the goal. It's to help you maximize any financial investment you're going to make, uh, maximize your time, maximize your energy. Helps you avoid big type A uh, things that can explode in your face and put you out of business. That's the goal of this course. It's to help you be successful and not blow up your life in the process of trying to start a farm. So, again, if you're interested in learning more about that, check out FarmBusinessEssentials.com. Until March 19th, we have an early bird special. You can save 200 bucks off the course, but on March 19th, that's the last day, it will go up to its full retail price. It will not come back down. It will not go on sale. It will not be cheaper than it is right now. So go out, check that out. You can watch an hour's worth of free video previews to see if you, you like it. Uh, you can get a real taste for it and see what you think. If you've got questions, email me, darby at grassfedlife.co. As always, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend, and take care. All right, next, uh, I have a question for Doc Bones about depression and anxiety during a shit-hit-the-fan scenario. This is a very real concern, uh, and I have witnessed things similar to what the person asking the question will uh, we'll talk about with Doc Bones here. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the top survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Also, Block Talk Radio's Survival Medicine Hour and co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question for the expert counsel's Dr. Bones comes from Dean, who writes... In the midst of a widespread disaster, some people are not able to psychologically cope with all the various changes and stresses that come with loss, and whether the losses of comfort, material goods, health, or relationships. These people may decide that running away, ending their own life, or harming a member of their group or family is an acceptable way to cope. How can the modern survivalist identify and prepare for this type of psychological threat? Here's my background. When I was deployed to Djibouti, Easily one-third of our casualties were psychological in nature. Our supply officer stabbed himself in the thigh. 
Our flight surgeon started stealing and using Ativan because of a Dear John letter, and many other soldiers and sailors would come into the field hospital for substance abuse, injuries from fights, etc. This all happened in a relatively calm area. Plenty of food, no active combat, telephone communications, etc. And if it happens there, I would expect it would happen even more in a local community that experiences a significant disaster. How can I prepare my family for this aspect of a you-know-what-hits-a-fan situation or more likely just the run-of-the-mill stresses that happen to us, such as the loss of a family member, job loss, illness, social media bullying, a depressed economy, etc. Thank you, Dean. Dean, anxiety and depression are the constant companion of the disaster survivor, especially if thrown into an off-grid setting. You may, as the medic, have to deal with injuries from the occasional gunfight at the OK Corral, but they won't be the daily issue, at least I hope they won't, that the care of the depressed or anxious will be. The fact that your unit was beset by a number of psychological cases in an area that was not an active combat zone suggests to me that uncertainty may have played a role there, and no doubt will play a role in a long-term survival setting. In survival, the uncertainty is pretty basic. Where is my next meal coming from? Will I get sick from drinking from a local water source? Is there someone on the way that wants to take our food and supplies? Do I have the skills and medicine to care for a sick individual? When will society restabilize? if ever. In Djibouti, the uncertainty wasn't the type that you might expect in an active combat zone where there might be a sniper in a house or an IED on the road, although I don't know how you can ever be sure of that. I would expect that the uncertainty and loss of control about what's happening at home would lead to a heck of a lot of anxiety and depression. I'm not sure about the supply officer stabbing himself in the thigh like Charlie Sheen did in Platoon. Is that still a way to get a ticket home these days? You have to tell me. The idea of waiting around to be sent into the field might also be a factor in making some people anxious, irritable, or depressed, which certainly can lead to substance abuse, which was a major issue in Vietnam, and more than a few physical altercations among young men with a lot of testosterone coursing through their veins. In survival, some aspects may be similar, but the sense of loss is linked to more concrete things. Our fighting men have a home to go to, but the same may not be said for the survivors of a major long-term disaster. The loss of basic conveniences that we take for granted, for example, such as electricity, the loss of modern medical care, the loss maybe of a roof over your head, plays a part. Stress is not always bad, by the way. Facing challenges can make you stronger. Who makes it and who doesn't will depend on their resilience their education, their training, their experience, all this is essential, but resilience or the lack of it is a factor that I believe assures success or failure. A person's tendency to overcome adversity is partly nature and partly nurture, I think. Could this ability be inherited? And certainly some children warm up to new tasks or people more effectively than others. Yet, there are many factors that play a part. Family support, financial status, quality of schooling, various other things come into play. An unemployed introvert is at a psychological disadvantage when compared to the monetarily secure individual who belongs to a close family or active religious or social community. Despite this, I believe that it is possible to increase your ability and your family's ability to overcome adversity through a disciplined approach. You can, one, learn to regulate and control your emotions, you can adopt a realistic but positive attitude, you can become physically fit, and you can help develop a supportive community. 
Let's talk a little bit about emotions and attitude. If you can control feelings of anger, fears, insecurity, and sadness, you can maintain a clear head in times of trouble. Oftentimes, people interpret a negative event as being worse than it is. Studies at Columbia University show that people who intentionally reappraise an event, such as, let's say, a rejected job application, as being less negative actually increase the activity of the part of the brain that helps to plan and direct. Reappraisal seems to inhibit the activity of the part of the brain that's involved in feelings of fear. Study participants reported a stronger sense of well-being after adopting the strategy, which I call looking for the silver lining in the storm cloud. This glass-half-full approach could be useful everywhere from the athletic field to the workplace to the hospital room, and yes, to the disaster setting. Those people with the ability to find a neutral or positive interpretation of a negative event tend to live longer and have a better quality of life than those that don't. In another study that was performed many years ago, a group of women were asked to write a life history. These were rated according to the degree in which they expressed positive emotions. 34% of those who wrote negative histories were alive after 80 years of age, but 90% of the women who wrote positive histories were alive after 80 years of age. This is all great. You don't have to be a psychiatrist to know what a positive and can-do attitude will do, but in survival scenarios, too sunny an attitude could lead to denial of negative events and inaction when action is needed. You have to have a realistic approach. You might underestimate dangerous situations Realism and positivity have to strike a balance. Now, I want to say something about physical exertion. It's well known that physical activity increases the feel-good substances in your brain known as endorphins. A lot of people know about this and improves your resilience. This is good, but only if the physical activity leads to a positive goal. In normal times, it's to get fit, right? Get that six-pack. In survival, it's to increase your chances of doing well in troubled times. There are some types of exertion, though, that aren't so great, like dodging bullets, you don't get much benefit from that other than not getting shot. Physical exertion also inhibits a stress hormone that's known as cortisol. Regular physical activity is not only good for your heart, but studies at the University of Colorado show that regular aerobic exercise has other benefits as well. A decrease in anxiety and depression, believe it or not, and an improvement in attention span, decision-making, and memory. How about that? And also, how about a sense of community? An effective strategy to improve your ability to overcome adversity is to establish and maintain strong relationships with other members of the community, maybe even the preparedness community. A sense of security due to support from others allows you to deal with stressful events positively. It has even been shown to lower ill effects suffered in veterans from post-traumatic stress disorder. Supportive community bolsters self-confidence, provides a safety net that minimizes the damage from failure. And social bonds are the glue that will keep us together in dark times. Make an effort to develop these now by joining your religious community, social organizations, or otherwise connecting with like-minded individuals. Now, you may think you're connected well to others, but I would like you to ask yourself some questions. Who do you interact with regularly? Who would help you in times of trouble without hesitating? Who would you help in times of trouble without hesitating? Who do you turn for advice? Who's glad to give it? And who do you know who has bounced back from adversity themselves? If your answer to all these questions is nobody, well, you know, your chances to 
stay on an even keel after a disaster drop. And I think precipitously. Spend some time and effort to develop new and stronger relationships. That is going to be key. We have to be prepared to deal with setbacks if you know what hits the fan. If we can see negative events as a bump on the road instead of the end of the road, we can succeed even if everything else fails. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do your family a big favor by getting more medically prepared with kits and supplies from Nurse Amy's entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off anything in our store. Oh, I would like to mention that we have a current events podcast called American Survival Radio, which is a proud member of the Genesis Communications Network and carried on various land-based radio networks throughout the country. You can find our show site at GCNlive.com, right next to Alex Jones. All right, good stuff from Darby. Next up, we got a question for Stephen Harris on AC versus DC, also known as the Battle of the Currents. Yes, the Battle of the Currents. Um, we're going to get the word efficient in here, and we're going to find out. I was like, when I saw it, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be a full-on Harris rant here. It's, it's not a full Harris rant. I'd say I have a, a one to ten, with a ten being a full-blown. Steve, you need to move to a state with medical marijuana and relax. Harris rant being a ten, uh, and in a, in a calm, even. Tone Steve that you almost wonder is he okay? Is he still really Steve being a one? It's about a seven and a half. So with that in mind, here we go with the uh, battle of the currents. Uh, let's get ready to rumble. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the excerpt panel to answer your question. You ever get one of those questions that people ask you all the time? You go, oh, no, not again. Well, I got one of those. I went through all of my TSP answers, and I found out there's about 150 of them so far. And I didn't really cover the subject. But I covered the subject an hour ago, and then I accidentally deleted the file, if you can believe it. So I'm recording this file for the second time. There was this thing called the War of the Currents. Nikola, Nikola Tesla, the genius, the man who died penniless and poor in a New York hotel room, who was, you know, tore up his patents for Westinghouse and never got a penny from Edison after he said he was going to pay him. Did, you know, his method of AC voltage and current went all the way around the world and Edison wanted to do DC current and he lost. There was this great big bid for the Niagara Falls power generating station and for a world's fair. Tesla won both of them. AC current became the standard that we use today. AC current goes all the way across the nation and, uh, Edison had to have his DC stations every mile, his DC power stations making DC every mile and a half in New York City in order to provide New York City with power. And Edison, Edison's cables were the size of your arm and Tesla's cables were nice and thin. We've had the war of the currents and people will tell me the story. Then they'll go, Steve, I got a 12 by 16 foot cabin that I'm finishing out. I'm getting ready to wire it. 
Should I wire it with AC wiring or DC wiring? I kind of want to go DC because it's more efficient and uh, lower voltage and just runs off the batteries, and I think it's probably all I need. Okay. We just had the war of the currents and Tesla won. AC is the world standard. I mean, I can go get a 120-foot extension cable from Walmart for $24. It's called a garden cable. It's 16-gauge. I can run over 10 amps through it. And I've actually hooked two of these together for 240 feet of cable plus another 100 foot as an emergency power source when I went on vacation because our condo was like eight stories up and the parking lot was on the other side of the building. So I could literally run power from my Harris battery backup system in the back of my truck all the way around the building and up to the eighth floor to where we were to light it up with the battery bank in the back of my pickup truck, let alone my pickup truck at idle. So (laughs) that's power, baby, okay? So if you run DC, look, they don't make a Keurig coffee maker for 12 volts DC. And if you have kids, they're going to want their Pop-Tarts in the morning from the toaster. You're not going to get a DC toaster. Don't send me any trash from any truck stops and everything. Oh, this plugs in my cigarette lighter. Cigarette lighter is 150 watts, okay, for coffee making, you gotta have about 12 to 1500 watts. Basically, a cabin that's 12 by 14, the whole thing is gonna be one circuit. When you go to Home Depot, Lowe's, or my favorite place, Menards, and you go look at all the lights and the toasters and the blenders and the wiring, it's all AC, 120 volts AC. The AC socket, 30 cents. The outlet, the thing in the wall that it goes into, 25 cents. The face plate, 12 cents. Everything is mass manufactured, low cost, high quality, you name it, off the shelf, and you want to go running DC, thick DC cables the size of your finger all the way through your cabin so you can have some DC outlets and it's more efficient. Stop worrying about it being efficient and worry about flexibility, ease, redundancy, and back up when things go wrong. So you're sitting in your cabin, and you got your DC, and your DC's powering the lights and the radio and recharging your cell phone. You're sitting there reading a book, and boom, the power goes out. Your Whatever happens, your DC power system fails. You had a cell short out in your battery. What are you going to do? You're going to get out the kerosene lanterns and the Coleman lanterns and light the place up like it was 1960. You got no other choice. You're stuck there on one thing, DC. Now, if you went and had a Harris battery bank and you decided that you wanted to have three 12-volt batteries instead of like two 6-volt golf carts, you could actually find out where the bad cell was in the 12-volt batteries, pull that one battery out, run off the other two. You could do that, uh, but you want to know more about that, go to energy1234.com, get my video on the uh, battery ba- back, the Harris battery banks, mobile and home, 
And also, you can go get it for free at battery1234.com. You can get the audio with Jack and me. It doesn't cost you nothing. If you love the audio, then go buy the video. It's cheap. So, if you go AC, one, it's going to be a lot cheaper, a lot thinner wire. Your whole cabin is basically going to be one circuit, okay? You're not going to run the coffee maker and the microwave at the same time. They're both high power. So it's going to be like, do I want my croissant microwave first, or do I want to, you know, run the Keurig first? Okay, make your coffee, then run your microwave, sip your coffee while you're waiting for the microwave, and then eat. So you basically, you got the whole house, and it's on one plug. You got one plug you're holding in your hand, and you got your Harris battery bank, and you got a 400-watt inverter and a 1,600-watt inverter. And for your normal stuff, just running the lights and charging your your tablet and your phone and running a DVD for the kids and a little 28-inch LCD TV, you're on the 400-watt inverter, and it's powering the house, the cabin, lighting it up just perfectly. Oh, it's the morning time, and I gotta have my coffee. You just unplug out of the 400, plug into the 1600 or the 2000, flip the switch, run the Keurig, make your coffee. As I swore, you, I promised you in a previous show that you would have coffee. I get it. So anyways, there you go. So now you're running off the 400-watt inverter. It's at night. The kids are in bed. The fire is crackling down in in the um, chimney. And uh, you're laying there on the couch, and you got your Netflix, you got your tablet on you, and you're watching a Netflix movie, and the windows cracked, and the owls are hooting, and other critters are making noise, and the crickets are going. And boom, power goes out. What the heck? Oh, looks like I got a bad cell in my battery. I can't power my cabin with my battery and my inverter. What am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to take an inverter, go out to my car, and since my car is 100 feet away from the cabin, I'm going to run a 100-foot power cable from the cabin to the inverter on the car, clamp onto the car, and boom, my cabin's now lit up. Oh, I gotta make coffee in the morning. I'm gonna go screw down the 1600 watt inverter to the car, start it up, make my coffee in the morning. Your cabin's now powered off your car. Couldn't do that if you were DC. Or, I've been buying generators, but you've been asking me about other generators. I got the Honda EU2000i, best thing there is. But everyone doesn't want to buy a $1,100 generator. So it's like, okay, I got, let's say you got a generator. I went to Home Depot online, and I got a Sportsman 800-watt slash 1,000-watt inverter, ultra-quiet, half-gallon fuel tank inverter generator for $227 on sale. So you take that out and you fire it up and it goes, and you know, it's nice and quiet and you take that plug and the extension cord, you plug it in, voila, you got power in your house. Or you go get a Harbor Freight, you have a Harbor Freight $89 two cycle generator, 700, 800 watts. There's also a 1200 watt version. You kick it on. I mean, how can you not have one of these when they cost $89? So what if they only last a 1,000 hours? They're backup power. You start that thing up, it's a little louder, plug it in, boom, your, your cabin's lit up. 
You might not be able to make coffee off of it, but as Jack is probably yelling at you, shut up, get a propane burner, heat up your water, and make it with a French press. Okay, Jack, I heard you yelling, and I said it to them. So there you go. If you wire it with AC, you got the cheapest stuff in the world off the shelf from Home Depot. You know, anyone coming in there after you can easily see, oh, you wired it this way. Okay, the whole entire 12 by 16 cabin is one circuit. And I forgot the name of the guy who wrote in about this, but he had a 12 by 16 cabin that he was finishing out. And he wanted to know, should I go DC and be more efficient or should I run AC? And that's why I'm answering this. I couldn't find the email, so it's, this is kind of a generic thing. But I get this question all the time. Now, is DC is nice and simple, okay? And Dave am good friend of mine, we got these things we call Nelson lights. And it's an 18-gauge wire with two alligator clips that goes onto a car battery or your car. And then you run it into your house, and it's got these little LED 12-volt lights that you can attach to it anywhere you want. And we put these little washers, we run the wire through these little washers, and we got neodymium magnets. It's like I'll take a little screw, and like a real small one, and I'll screw it into like the corner of my wall where you can't see it. And I'll take the neodymium magnet and go click, and it'll hold up the wire right there. And then I'll have this like little bitty pencil dot, that you can't hardly see on the ceiling. It's like, I know there's a drywall screw there because the magnet found it. So I'll take another little washer with the magnet and I'll put it up there and it's like, bink, it'll hold it right to the ceiling. Okay, it's really cool. So I got these 12, this, this, this wire running from my car from the living room to the kitchen to the den and it's got all these 12 volt lights on it. Kind of cool, kind of neat, kind of simple. We call them Nelson lights because the guy who did this in Puerto Rico that Dave saw when he went there for CAC team, the guy's name was Nelson, so we call them Nelson lights. So if you want to have some 12-volt lights that are your backup to your backups, that or some 12-volt lights in the area of your battery bank, so it's like, oh, everything just went horrible, everything's broken, you go to your battery bank, throw a switch, battery bank powers on some 12-volt lights, you go, what the heck's going on? Oh, the inverter connector, connector, connector got loose. Take your wrench that you always have there, tighten it down, everything else. So, yeah, if you want to have some DC for some simplicity, but it's like for lighting and charging your tablet and charging your phone and stuff like that, yeah, go ahead and have some DC there. Okay, especially as a backup and especially around your battery bank. But wire the whole cabin with AC, please. Let's not fight the war of the currents. Just can't we all get along? And be efficient. If you want to know all the great stuff I have done with Jack Spearco, please go to Stephen1234.com and get it all. It's basically free. And don't forget about the Bug Out Trailer Show Jack and I are doing. It is the first Tuesday of every month, and it is fun. And it's some of the best stuff Jack and I have ever done. I love it. I'll talk to you guys later. Um, it's unique, isn't he? He's just a great guy. Anyway, uh, I have a question here uh, that's actually a pretty easy one, but it lets me talk about some things that I think are important that we uh, get out, especially as we're heading to spring and people are getting out on the homestead and doing projects. And you know, not, I don't want anybody out there making major Type 1 errors. I see 
one version or another of a type 1 error in this question. A type 1 error. What is a type 1 error? There's a lot of different people have different explanations for it, but I like Bill Mollison's of the permaculture world the best, where he said that a type 1 error is an error that you make, that you end up forced to live with, that you will regret from the day you did it for the rest of your life. That's type 1 error. Uh, like putting a dam in the wrong place, for instance. It's a bit difficult to get rid of it, to move it, to put it back. All right. So, Aiden sounds to me, if I understand the question right, like he's about to make a potentially very dangerous type 1 error as well. Hi, Jack. Long-time listener to the podcast. Big fan. My question is regarding a pond I plan to build. Background. We just purchased an 8-acre property on Vancouver Island. There are two existing ponds that are fed by a seasonal stream, and I'm wanting to construct another This pond would be at a higher elevation than the other two. My question is this. Do you think that a berm that incorporates hugaculture pond will be built on a slope is a good idea? I figure if I built it higher than it needs to be to accommodate the decay of gradual shrinking of the berm, it might work. Pros and cons. I'd love to hear what you think about this idea. Thanks for your time and keep doing what you do. Aiden, I think it's a terrible idea. I'm not even sure exactly what you mean, and almost every way that I can conceive of what you might mean, I think is a terrible, awful, horrible idea that you should not even ever think about again, and you should, I don't know, slightly punish yourself for even thinking this way. Before I answer the question and explain why it's so bad, though, let me get people caught up who don't know what a hugel culture is. A hugel culture is where we take a bunch of wood and we bury it. That's one way to look at it. But it actually really means hill culture. And a lot of people think a hugel culture is when you dig a hole in the ground, fill it up with wood, and then put dirt back on top of it, and then grow in it. That's a wood core garden. And that's a good thing in some instances and a bad thing in others. Where you actually build it above grade, that's hill culture with a wood core, i.e. hugel culture, very uh, actually well-known ancient technique for growing and building soil in Austria and Switzerland and Germany, made famous by Sepp Holzer and in the United States via Sepp Holzer via, or by, by Sepp Holzer via Paul Wheaton, our own Duke of Permaculture. And there is a lot of reasons that permaculture is done. One is that they are, it's very drought-proof technique by the second year because the wood core acts like a reservoir and a wick, wicking up subsurface moisture into the mound. Uh, so there's And there's a lot of other good things that happen when we do hugel culture. Now, <laughs> Aiden, I don't know what you're asking. This is what it sounds like you're asking. You're going to dig the dam out, and in the berm on the downgrade side that holds the water in, which is actually your dam, your impoundment, you want to build that with a wood core. This is all kinds of wrong, period. Um The entire purpose of a dam wall is for it to be impermeable and stable. A hugel mound is not that, and I don't care if you bring it, build it 10 feet taller than it needs to be, you have wood core in an earth mound, you're going to have pathways for water to go through, and eventually your dam is going to fail. If it, if it, depending on exactly how you do this and what you do to get it done, it might fail with a couple hundred metric tons of, of wood and mud sliding down the mountain and obliterating your house or your neighbor's house. That's not what I think you're looking for in a dam, so you shouldn't do that. Now, I'm trying to think of other things that you could mean. 
One might be that because you're excavating this dam where you are, you will have a surplus of material. And then you might take that material somewhere else and build a dam or build a mound that you do hula culture with. Assuming everything else is done properly, there's probably nothing wrong with that. And you'd have a lot of subsoil, and this would be a good way to make subsoil into high-quality topsoil. That is not what I think you're going to do. And the bigger the slope, the more of that, that excavated material you need for your dam wall. So I don't think that's what you mean. If you're going to be doing a dam on a slope especially, I think all the time, but especially on a slope, you need to be installing that dam with what's, what's called a keyway. If you don't know how to do that, you need to get a contractor that knows how to build dams with a keyway and do it with a keyway. But this is basically we take some of our best material and where the dam's going to be that it looks like we should be building it up, we start out by going down. We go down deeper than the, 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 the part that's actually going to hold water and we pack it with tight clay all the way to the surface. Then we begin the excavation of our dam and we build our dam wall on top of that keyway and it locks it in like a key, hence keyway. If you want to know more about that, you can go to YouTube and type in Keyway Dam, and you'll find videos explaining it. So that would be how you would build the dam. The other way that you could mean this, you're going to put in a dam. You didn't say it, but you also are going to put in a swale to catch water to push into the dam. This is a good idea, especially if you've got a really high dam with limited catchment. And you need to increase the catchment so the dam can be self-sustaining. Then putting in a, 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 a catchment swale is a good idea. A swale is a ditch on contour. That means it's a level ditch. And a catchment swale, it's designed, all swales are actually catchment swales, but tied to a dam, what happens is the swale begins to fill and the water goes into the dam. And it fills the dam until the dam is completely full. And then it back floods up the swale when the dam's completely full and overflows somewhere called a sill an overflow spillway known as a sill in a swale. And maybe you mean I'm going to put in a catchment swale and I'm going to make a culture mound on the downhill side of it in its berm. While not as bad an idea as putting a hugel mound in your dam wall, this is also a bad idea when you build scale uh, swales on any level of scale. I have a whole article I wrote about this a couple years ago because people keep talking, do hoogle swells, do hoogle swells. You're trying to kill people and destroy property is what you're trying to do. Here's what happens now. We have a swale. Generally, a swale will be six to nine feet wide and around a foot deep in the center. This means that a couple hundred feet of swale will hold something in the neighborhood of about 20,000 gallons of water. When we make a mound on a swale, it is not compacted. It is a loosely packed mound. By the way, when we make a mound for our dam, it is highly compacted. We drive the machine back and forth over it as we build it. Hoogle mounds are also non-compacted mounds. You see the problem. You're trying to dam water with a non-compacted mound full of wood. Don't do that. Back to the swale in case you mean it that way. If you do this with a swale, eventually that swale will, will put tens of thousands of gallons of water into the ground, tens of thousands of gallons of water into the pond, and it will begin to hold water. Now, the mound in front of it is non-compacted, and it is not designed to hold water in. The sill is at the lip of the ditch level. It's compacted ground in that one area, generally a couple meters long. This pacifies the water by spreading it out and letting it sheet versus run out and do erosion. However, you've got a lot of water there. Now you have a mound of dirt sitting on top of a buoyant wood core. 
sooner or later what's going to happen is you're going to sufficiently infiltrate enough water that that core is going to begin to do what it's designed to do, which is float. And then sooner or later what's going to happen is a large portion or even maybe all of your mound is going to go screening down the hill. And if you saw this with your eyes, it would look rather slow motion. It doesn't look like it's going very fast. It's really not going very fast. However, it does weigh many, many metric tons, and mass times acceleration equals force. When it hits something, it will plumb take it out. How do I, for a fact, know that this can happen? I'll tell you how. Mark Shepard told me a story of some permaculture people that talked to a church and said, we want to do permaculture and do a community garden. And the church said, fine, what's permaculture? And they told me, said, oh, that sounds cool. Sure, you can do that here. So they went and they got their trucks out and they found lots and lots of wood and they trucked in bunches of wood and they put it on contour and then they got out their shovels. They didn't even use an excavator and they hand dug a very big, beautiful swale. It looked awesome. It was actually pretty big. It was, I think he said it was something like 75 feet long and full size, even though it was done with shovels and a great big mound. Big old, you know, about three foot high hoogle mound on the other side, quite wide as well. Great joy came as the rains came and they did a pretty good job of catching the water off of the hard pack, uh, the, 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 the uh, what do you call the driveway. So they got a really good catchment. Yay, joy. And it filled up. And the whole mound went floating on a fairly insignificant slope down the street to the neighboring building. And when it hit that building, it breached the wall and many thousands of gallons of water and mud poured into the neighboring building. Now the church is mad. The guy that owns the building is really freaking mad. And both of them probably don't think permaculture is a good idea anymore because some knucklehead took two techniques and they didn't understand either one of them and put them together. Aiden, this is what you're asking me if you should do. Some version of this is all I can get out of it. If that's what you're asking me, the answer is no. Do not do it. On putting in ponds and dams, I really recommend that you hire someone when you're doing ponds and dams, especially your first couple, that really knows what they're doing, that has a history and an experience level doing them in your geology with your soils. This is not a forgiving technology. It's abundantly simple, but one small error can make a big problem. And I'll tell you some of the ways that you know you're not qualified to do a dam without assistance. If you say, I'm going to put that dam right there, and I say, great, what's your catchment area? and you don't know, and you can't figure that out in, like, square feet or acres, you're not qualified to determine whether that dam's going to work or not. If you are doing that, and I say, so with that catchment area, what's your permeability rate? In other words, how much water goes into the soil before it runs? And so what's your effective catchment area for 100% catchment? In other words, if it was concrete, how much would it be? And how many thousands of gallons of water does that represent per inch of rainfall? And what is your 100-year rain event here, and how much water would that be? And what are the consequences of that occurring? And you don't know that, you're not qualified to do a pond or a dam. Now, there are places where you can look at it, and it's a very, very safe place to pop a little pond or a dam in. And anybody with a bulldozer or a bobcat or an excavator can put in a pond. And it's not a big risky thing. And if something goes wrong, it's actually pretty easy to fix. 
As soon as you step beyond that being the case, you need to get help. You need someone with some engineering knowledge and some experience, especially with your soil types. So that's what I'm going to suggest that you do. Again, though, if your question is, I'm going to dig this great big hole, because there's places where a pond is really a hole. And you don't really need to build a dam. We have them here in Texas. They call them just plain old stock tanks. We have places where the clay is really, really deep, either red or black, depending on what part of the state you're in. You basically just shape a hole, and when it rains, it fills up with water. And you could, you know, usually what they do is they kind of just spread it around the, 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 the hole, but you could end up with surplus low-quality soil. And if you took that somewhere and built a hoogle mound with it, you could build really high-quality soil that way. And that's what I want to talk about today, too, what hoogle culture really is. Hoogle culture is building soil. I, I think Paul Wheaton kind of messed it up a little bit. I know he's going to be mad at me for saying this, but I really do. As I learned more and more about why and how Sepulcher builds hoogle mounds, I realized it wasn't really that much about drought-proofing and irrigation. It was about building soil. And on his farm uh, in, in Austria, what he'll do is he'll push a terrace in the side of the mountain. And then, not on contour, going vertically, so that the terrace is one direction, let's say the terrace is the x-axis, the hoogle mounds are the y-axis. So they're built so that water moves around them off the terrace. And he'll build them roads of those. And he'll plant them and cultivate them into annual production and maybe midterm perennial production. Some of those mounds may stay for almost ever and may turn into more of like bushes and, and, and shrub layer, hedge layer, vine layer stuff with some annual production in them. But most of them, after a number of years, he takes a piece of equipment and flattens them out. And he pushes them all back flat over that terrace. And now you've taken that terrace that you cut into the mountain and you remove the topsoil. You can only save so much of it. And then you've increased the surface area. So what you've saved doesn't even cover it again. Think about how a terrace works and how you know what that does, right? So then you, you end up with you know tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in valuable soil that you could never afford to bring in And you then take that either into pasture or into a forested system of production. And that's what hugel culture really is used for. Now, the wood cores do improve drought resiliency a great deal. And it's fine to use hugel culture for that. But you need to think about where they go. And if you're going to be putting any kind of a hugel mound on contour, it needs to be smaller than typical and not on steep slope that could give way and come down. Um, and it probably needs to not have swales. It could have swale-like features or paths. I have a series of four rows of small hugel mounds um, right in my backyard that's been turned into a small orchard. It's on contour. It's completely safe. It's not going anywhere. Any fool could look at it and go, that's okay. When you start building one-and-a-half to two-meter-high mounds full of soil, and wood cores, and you put them on contour with catchment behind them, you're creating a potential natural disaster. And if you build a, a dam where the wall is full of wood cores, you're also creating a, a disaster. And, you know, those long-term systems are tree-growing systems. A dam, you don't want to plant trees on the breast, right? You want to plant, 
you know, I'll tell you the best thing in the world if it'll grow in your climate is bamboo. Bamboo's beautiful because even when it gets really big, it's got shallow roots, but it's very, very, uh, very, very tough and very, very good at holding the ground. And it's probably the best thing you could grow on a dam. All right, with that, guys, I am uh, wrapped up with another episode. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, my article that explains this all uh, in great detail is available uh, at Permaculture News, uh, the official blog of the uh, Permaculture Research Institute of Australia. They published it several years ago. I do have a link in today's show notes uh, where you can go and read that, that article, and you can actually see a video I did to clarify some things in it that I think people were not understanding. Let me uh, remind you at this time, if you like this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. When you're going to buy some online, just go to tspaz.com first. Check out my Amazon reviews. Whatever you do, as long as you go to tspaz.com first, you can help support our work. And um, I have a great item reviewed for you today. It is called the Herbal Medicine Makers Handbook by James Green, uh, Herbalist. Um, I've said this before about this book. If you said to me, Jack, you can only have one book, one resource on herbal medicine in your home, and that's all you will ever have for the rest of your life, and whenever you need to learn something, you're not even allowed to go on the Internet. You have to use this one resource and one resource only for any questions you have about making an herbal preparation or what herb to use. I would say I'll take the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook, please. It is an incredible manual. And it is also um, like taking a course in herbal medicine. If you go through this, this book and do all of the different components of it, it, it is as good as any course that you'll ever take anywhere, you know, online or, or what have you. I don't know if it would be as good as if you actually had somebody who was an herbalist to train hands-on with, but anything you could do with a book or an online course, this is better than anything else I've ever found. Uh, it's it's incredibly easy to follow along with. You can learn about anything in herbal medicine. You're not going to hurt yourself if you do the things that are in this book. You're not going to kill yourself. You're not going to be trying to figure out how to use a foxglove uh, to treat you know heart disease or something like that with it. It's it's all stuff that's safe to work with. Uh, techniques and, and procedures and processes that are safe to do. You can read my full review and always support us by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day today is by the Grateful Dead, man. It's been forever since I've listened to the Grateful Dead, and certainly forever since I've heard this song. The song came out in 1974 when I was two years old. It's called the U.S. Blues. And it's an, it's an interesting song. If the, the uninformed listening to it might actually see it as a Raw, 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 USA, wave the flag song. Um, it's actually sort of mocking flag waving. But not the flag as a whole, not like that, but like the, the rabidly patriotic, indoctrinated person that never questions anything uh, about their government, that everything our government says and does is okay and good. Um, and it's also kind of a lampooning, uh, that was designed to free the counterculture. I, I think you have to understand, in 1974, it wasn't like today. You know, like today, people speak out against our government all the time. And it's kind of accepted that that's going to be there. And there were a lot of people speaking out against our government in the 60s and early 70s, but you had to be kind of cautious with whether you wanted to do that or not, because you got really branded really fast as being a bad guy or, you know, whatever... Uh, until people figured out, well, if you do it in large enough numbers, that's kind of where the 
whole concept of this song is. It's actually a little bit hard to get your hands around. There's a lot of different ways it can be taken. It's kind of the way that I've always taken it. And uh, for such a touchy subject, it's kind of a happy-sounding song. Kind of a good one to end your Friday on. And, and I, I think at this time I need to say something. I didn't really plan on it when I knew I was doing the song, but we have, in our country, screwed up what patriotism means. We have said patriotism means back in your country no matter what. That is not patriotism. Patriotism is about your nation, not the state. What that nation's ideals are and what they're supposed to represent. The first person to speak out against their government when it's wrong should be the patriot. Just something to think about as you head through your weekend. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Steal your
Summertime. 